You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're featuring a conversation between Tom and Virginia Edwards, who's president of EPE, Editorial Projects in Education, and has been since 1997. She's also been the editor-in-chief of Education Week for 28 years. Right. So it's so interesting to listen to her share what she has watched evolve in the education field over the past three decades. Think of how much has changed in education since the 80s. But as a fellow journalism major, I also find her start in journalism super interesting because it was still a pretty male-dominated industry when she started. So she's kind of a hero of mine for helping pave the way for women to find careers in education journalism. She is definitely an interesting and inspiring woman for all of us with so much to share. Let's hear what she and Tom had to say. I'm with Virginia Edwards, the editor of Education Week, the president of EPE, Educational Editorial Projects in Education. Virginia, Ginny, it's uh, terrific to be with you. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. You just put in 20 years at Education Week. You started in 1999, is that right? 89. It's 28 years. Wow, is that right? You became editor 20 years ago? Yep. No, uh, became president in 1997, but I was editor going back all the way to 1989. Wow. I was the number two for that period between 89 and 97. Ron Wolk. Remember Ron, Tom? Yeah. Uh, He was my predecessor. I'm actually only the third president of EPE since the late 50s. That is incredible. Very unusual for these days. Well, we both know Ron. Uh, what, What was he trying to accomplish when he started Education Week? Well, as you remember, in the early 80s, there really wasn't a national scene for education. The whole idea of what was happening in one state or one district as being useful, that information being useful, informative to others, just hadn't even entered the scene yet. And Ron, um, who actually had been on the board of EPE, which is the original, uh, who launched uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, after some looking around about what the next project would be for EPE, lower education was what they landed on. So that was in 1981. And that's, you know, it, it was just seen as a sector that was really sitting pretty to, you know, undergo a maturation, if you will, and and really be seen as something that could benefit from people knowing what was going on across the street or across the country. Do you have the sense that that Edweek was started as a as a mission focused business, as an as an impact organization? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I would say, Tom, that any of us in journalism who have really been advocates of public service journalism think journalism should be playing that role in general. So, yeah, I mean, that the idea that information, data, the uh, transference of information around research and what works, that's part of what helps, you know, people get better and make better policy. So yeah, from the and it's you know it's a five hundred one c three nonprofit with a an educational mission. Are you trained as a journalist? Yep, I uh, have degrees in political science and journalism, and I worked for ten years before coming to Ed Week for a really wonderful daily newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky. In fact, I got bitten by the education bug as a reporter after a stint 
I mainly was an editor from the start, but after about seven years, a mentor encouraged me to get some more reporting chops. And I covered the statewide education story in Kentucky from 1984 to 1986. That's usually a stepping stone beat where you you do that for two years and then you move off to something else. I don't think that's the case anymore. And at a paper like the Courier Journal was, it was seen as one of the premier beats because we were so committed to this public service notion. And uh, we had a statewide purview. So while we also covered school boards like in Louisville and Jefferson County, the story then, and you know, Kentucky's been an unbelievable story since then, was the move to improve schools to benefit all kids and families and communities. So it was a big statewide story. So Jenny, you, you really were at Education Week for the entire uh, standards-based reform era, really from a nation at risk all the way through uh, NCLB and, and Arnie Duncan's term. That's right. That's a remarkable period of time, in really in American history. I talk about it in those exact terms, Tom. I talk about you know what we know happened in the '80s as being the precursor to standards-based reform, with efforts to improve basic skills and other policy efforts. Remember, no pass, no play kinds of work. But by the late '80s. And including in places like Kentucky and backed up by great research and writing that was being done by Mike Smith, Jennifer O'Day, we clearly had our bead on this notion that standards-based reform was an organizing premise for school improvement and for improvement of student outcomes. We had an unusual group of governors uh, who were interested in this topic at that time, right? Right. That's exactly right. So the summit at Charlottesville, and I am, I am a big believer that people owe a big debt of uh, gratitude to um, Southern governors. When you can just, you can tick them off. Bill Clinton, Riley, Lamar Alexander, uh, Bill Winner in Mississippi, Jim Hunt, of course, in uh, North Carolina. And while her name is not as well known, Martha Lane Collins, who was in Kentucky, was very much a part of that cohort of governors that saw the connection between economic development and a better life for people and the need to improve education. And I still think that is, uh, I think it was too bad in some ways through the 90s and a little bit into the early 2000s, there was kind of a pushback on that idea that you wanted to draw a connection between education and the economy. It was somehow seen as a less virtuous way to try to improve schools than just being an important element in a better democracy. I don't, I don't poo-poo that at all. That may have peaked right um, before NCLB. Do you remember the, the national summit at Armonk that uh, IBM put together, Lou Gerstner? Yep. Uh, Bill Clinton spoke there, gave the best speech that I, uh, best political speech that I've ever watched. Room full of governors, really strong bipartisan commitment. Yeah. That was uh, just a remarkable period in time where we saw governors uh, with a re- really strong commitment to education, bipartisan commitment to to education as an equity issue and an economic development issue. Yep. And that early work around uh, getting the standards-based reform um, kind of way of thinking about things, I think 
and I've already said it, put a really important frame out there, the idea that you needed standards and a way to measure whether kids were achieving those standards, and then a system of accountability and a system of then making sure that teachers and other folks had all the resources they need. I personally think that some of the agenda got lost, right? The opportunity to learn part of that agenda didn't get as uh, fully developed as it needed to be. And I think that's part of what um, some people who would push back and say, well, standards-based reform turned out not to be the way to go. I, I push back on that. And I say, I absolutely think the frame is still a good one. Um, I think there are plenty of examples of how it's worked well in lots of contexts, whether even at the, almost the state level, certainly district and school building levels. But I do think that there's still questions about resources and about actual opportunity in that context. It's interesting that what seemed like small decisions ended up being a, a big deal. So I, I think back to 2001 when the debate on how to structure the, the frame was well underway and we were talking about a growth and achievement and both were important and we did have these things called standardized tests that allowed us to to get a pretty good, at least comparable and uh, reliable and affordable picture of achievement, didn't really have as good a, a way to measure growth. And so we sort of locked down the frame on on achievement o over growth. And um, as a result, a bunch of unintended consequences that had some uh, really negative negative outcomes. Just uh, so that I, just an example of a simple uh, maybe not simple, uh, a decision made early in the process when the, the measures were not yet very robust that had uh, big consequences. That's right. And, and when you think about the key leg of standards-based reform, one of the key legs being accountability, then, I mean, that's when you're drawing the line from the standards and assessments, and which is to say all the kinds of measures. But then what are the consequences, right? And what do you, what do you use that information to do? And how do you incentivize or, as it turns out, de-incentivize people um, based on the accountability. I mean, the, I do think the accountability particulars got ahead of uh, where we could have, you know, a good sense that they would work. Lots of unintended consequences. Here's an example. I, I mentioned I was in Orlando yesterday with a group of superintendents and Texas, for example, great idea. They are looking at broader aims and by 2018, the state wants to incorporate broader aims into their accountability system. Sounds good, but we could end up repeating the same thing of taking uh, weak early measures, too quickly throwing them into an accountability system, and, and repeating all the, many of the unintended consequences of NCLB. Right. And I do think that the grown-ups, whether teachers, education leaders, principals, superintendents, they are not as well equipped to, you know, you and I might talk about these issues all the time, have a pretty good sense of what the, the landscape looks like. But when you think about practitioners and their ability to take this, you know, highfalutin concept and implement it, I, th I just think there's a disconnect too much, too often. It seems like it should be easier than it turns out to be. That's for sure. Right. So you... 
you had this interesting uh, perch there just outside of Washington, D.C. during what turns out to be a, a historically outsized role for the federal government in education. Uh, first NCLB, and then we had the, the Great Recession, and that was followed by ARRA and, and Race to the Top and I-3. And so both through the end of this, this standards-based reform era and the big federal investment era, uh, Washington, D.C. was a pretty interesting place to, uh, to observe U.S. education. Yeah, and it, since I came out of the the state context, it was really interesting to have that as a touchstone as the feds ramped up their influence. I completely agree with your analysis there. And I think we're seeing, of course, a pretty big swing back now to the states and to locals. I think, you know, you could make the argument that it absolutely made sense, right? The passion, the advocacy behind these ideas that all kids should have these same opportunities. And I'm not just saying this rhetorically. I mean, I'm just saying it made sense for sharing of information. It made sense for uh, sharing what works kinds of uh, approaches. So, um, and I think the feds have a role in promoting the idea that we can all learn from each other and there can be federal legislation that encourages, you know, well, it's part of the statute, statutory responsibility to collect data, to um, make that data available to folks so they can use it to improve. So I think that's key. And they're also a conduit for money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can see it. I also can see how in light of some of the un unintended consequences and the potential overreach, there would be this correction that would bring now things back more to the states and to the, to the districts where the practice, the implementation, and the execution is going on. Right. Uh, so it marks both a great period of opportunity and uh, one for people like Katie Haycock, who have been a champion for equity for 30 years, uh, have to be really nervous. Yeah, although I think there's, you know, you started by asking about kind of Ed Week's uh, launch even all those years ago. And now, of course, nothing happens in education that isn't shared immediately, uh, and certainly by many. Right. Um, everybody's a publisher. Everybody's an information, has the ability to be a conduit of information these days. So while I, I respect Katie's uh, take on this a lot and do believe that, you know, one of the great highlights of the past 30 or so years has been this availability of data and the lens that has been put on uh, the achievement gaps and the variation in opportunity. So, um, you know, I think she is right to be somewhat concerned, but I, I think there's too much oversight now that comes from the community to allow that to happen. Uh, Jenny, it, we've talked about standards-based reform. Maybe the second largest sort of meta trend that you've watched happen in education is, is the shift from print to digital. And you got to watch it both um, as it changed in classrooms and then your own business was changing almost simultaneously. So uh, thoughts on, on this shift to digital and what it meant for, for your reporting? Well, you know, it is pretty amazing when you think about it. When I started in journalism, we were still on manual typewriters. You know, I don't think of myself as that freaking old, really. But, but we were on 
manual typewriters and pasting up newspapers using light tables and hot wax. No, I started on a drafting board as an engineer, so yep, didn't have a computer in college. You know, I watched it go from that to some, um, you know, mechanization, if you will, or whatever technology came in. But it really wasn't until 1994. And this thing called the Internet, the World Wide Web, right? We are the super highway. We started hearing about it. And um, I believed then, uh, based on what I was hearing, and higher ed was an early advocate or picker-upper, embracer of that. And so since we were still somewhat related to the Chronicle of Higher Education and just watched what was going on in higher ed, we started to get the sense, I started to get the sense that this digital way of generating information and disseminating it would actually amount to something. By the way, I was called an idiot by many, many people. I was, um, I confronted it both internally within the organization, my own organization, as well as externally, that I was, you know, an idiot for thinking that the internet would help with these kinds of issues that I was trying to help our field deal with, which is better access to information, more immediate access to information. And it took a while. It took, uh, you know, we launched in 95 in beta. We um, then were full-fledged in 96. And it took another, you know, good five years before, it was like 2001, before people, I think, really had a general um, ex- we're generally accepting that this thing really was an important contribution to how uh, information was going to, um, like I say, be generated and uh, disseminated. The interesting thing was how long it took the media, how long it took newspapers in particular, to figure out that there was something there. And I would say that most newspapers were caught flat-footed until well, almost toward 2010. Uh, before they recognized that it wasn't just a sideshow they were putting on in their newsroom, that, you know, the digital team that was repurposing what had been produced for print would somehow, you know, also needed to be put up on this website. And we really flipped that switch much earlier. It was, you know, going back to, the, as I said, the mid-90s, but by the early 2000s, we were already had our sights on a paid model. And we believed quite uh, aggressively and fervently that information has value, particularly in niche markets, and that we would charge for access to our content. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Today we're talking with Virginia Edwards, the president of Editorial Projects in Education and publisher of Education Week. Uh, Virginia, what what do you think we got right uh, in terms of implementing technology in schools over the last 20 years? And what do you see going forward? Well, I think, as you know better than I do, Tom, there's there are two parts of this. One is just access to the devices, access to the broadband capacity. And I think that through E-Rate and other efforts, and there was a lot of effort, has been a lot of effort to make sure that these tools have been available. And they're still not evenly available, particularly when you think about broadband and uh, the internet capacity that's needed, whether in rural districts or in urban districts. I mean, the problem can be quite acute, and so I don't want to diminish that. But I think much more important than having these tools and having the technology available is how you use them, right? 
it's a cliche, but they're nothing more than like a pencil is or like a keyboard is in a typewriter to being a tool to encourage learning, to encourage exploration. So I think there are a ton of good programs out there. You know, Tom, I'm going to interrupt us my, ourselves to note that another big trend in addition to standards-based reform, I would say is, uh, and it's not unrelated, but is the idea that we should be thinking about learning in a student-centered way. And there can be any number of uh, synonyms, adjectives you would use for that. Deeper learning, project-based learning, experiential. And you think about technology and what it provides to students to be uh, drivers of their own learning and to be able to connect with people and catalyze change. I, you know, I think it's remarkable, and there are lots of good examples of it. There are also lots of places that haven't figured out how to get the computers out of a box, much less how to implement them well into the curriculum, teaching and learning part of the equation. Yeah, these, these trends are related. It, it's interesting that technology did provide data to support standards-based reform, but it did allow teachers and students to be more off the ranch than ever, to really craft their own learning journeys. And uh, I think that has been aided by uh, several trends, the pushback on standardized testing, the research that we've learned about the importance of mindsets and uh, and social-emotional learning, and just our ability to personalize learning. And all of those things are coalescing to, uh, to, to make it much easier to create a, a very interesting, high-engagement, highly personalized school. I think both of us have enjoyed visiting them and, uh, and reporting about them over the years. Uh, Jenny, you talked about everybody being online. That, that's a huge change from you, you started really the paper of record. And, and now I think Edweek still has that role, but now everybody is publishing news and, and views. And how do you think about the landscape? We could talk about this for hours, right? Because it is actually the thing that I use as my most important touchstone in my work. What is the role of information, data, research stuff to improving policy and practice? I, I believe that fervently. I believe uh, journalism is ha, plays a key role in that, obviously. And by journalism, I, I mean generally independently reported, information that doesn't have a point of view, and I put that in quotes because I know, you know, you and I have talked about this tension between being an advocate and being a journalist, and, you know, it comes up even here. I make no bones that Education Week, and I in particular, am an advocate. I'm an advocate for better schools and better outcomes for kids, and I believe any journalist who doesn't who, who kind of hides behind the skirt of, I can't have an opinion even on that, is um, kind of a traitor to the cause. Yeah, I just don't believe it. They're just lying. I, I had this um, conversation with an NPR reporter last week who wrote a, what I thought was a hit piece on a, on a charter school. And I, I called her on it and I said, what were you trying to accomplish with it? I mean, you could go to any school district in the country and find a particular problem and write a really nasty story about it. And I, so I said to her, what, what were you trying to accomplish? And she said, well, I'm a journalist. And 
I, I, you know, I'm an I'm an advocate, and I write about things that I am in favor of, and that that is different than journalism. But but writing a really nasty piece because you know it's something people will read it, it is also a point of view, right? So there, there's tension here. I believe that gotcha journalism is not helpful to the cause. I just believe that. And in fact, the flip of that is the idea of solution-based journalism is a helpful ingredient in the mix. I'm not saying you don't cover the problems, the challenges, the soft underbelly of this field we're all involved in. But I'll tell you, these kind of one-shot gotchas that I don't think ultimately help. If you want to do a story on you know, challenges confronting charters and using one example to get into the story, because after all, journalists do try to be storytellers, that's fine, but you got to pull back from that and put it into context and perspective. I didn't hear that piece, so I'm, I'm actually not specifically talking about it, but the charter sector has been, I think, uh, would make an interesting case study for how it's been covered um, in general, you know, good, bad, and ugly, and how it aligns with the facts and what the, uh, the criticism or critique could be about it. So the, the business has changed a lot. We were talking about NPR, and I... I have listened to NPR for 40 years, um, it's now much more commercial. I mean, it's full of commercials. Sometimes they're called sponsorships, but they're really ads. There's a ton of ads on, and they've shifted away from hard news to uh, lots of entertainment programming, infotainment, um, and you can sort of feel the business pressure driving changes in that business. And I imagine you had to uh, deal with that over over the last 20 years at uh, Edweek as well. Well, you can parse that because I would start with audience and have that be your kind of unit of analysis and think about what will, and you know, we haven't used the word engage yet enough because ultimately so much of this work, whether in pure pre-K through 12 kind of field and how we engage kids and engage the, you know, the grownups to be involved in this work as the highest professionals possible, but also now that we're digital, we know what readers, users are reading, what what they're interested in, even how they, what use they make of the information up to a point. So some of it is about trying to be more engaged with, or or to encourage more engaged media consumers. And I mean, I think that's a good thing in general, unless you start pandering, unless you start, you know, doing things that are not true to what you're ultimate mission is, but I, and you can imagine, I've had to, you know, have hard conversations with colleagues who still wanted to, over the years, way less now, you can imagine that there was a time when people found it hard to believe that I was asking them to write a blog in addition to writing these more weighty kind of news stories. I believe in the value of much of what has kind of happened as a result of digital journalism, more immediate, more conversational, more kind of in the weeds, if you will, because you can bite off smaller chunks and get it out quicker and to people who want it, need it. Do you think of Edweek as digital first now? 
Absolutely. We made that shift actually about 10 years ago where we, I mean, that's the language we use in the office. We are digital first. There's still more changes that we need to make and will be made. You know, it has to do with the interplay between print and digital for sure. It has to do with workflow and, you know, just what, well, you know, if you're a New York Times reader, you, you may have read half of the New York, of the Sunday paper before you ever get it. Um, and that's, you know, starting to happen with us. You moved into a few other businesses. Talk, talk about that. You know, what used to be, we were a one-trick pony with a print publication, and then we had a website. We now have eight e-newsletters. We have 55 blogs. We have, you know, lots of digital uh, products, if you will. But we also went into the events business and initially did big events for couple few hundred people in cities across the country, very high production values. Frankly, they were uh, hard, time-consuming events to pull off, and the margins just weren't there. We're now doing more intimate events, including dinners for like 25, 30 people. Uh, We'll end up doing, I think it's about 50 of them this year, and they are quite successful. And the people who come, which tend to be the superintendents and CAOs and CTOs in districts really like the conversations. We keep them very focused on the work and what's happening on the ground. Is it editorial editorially complicated that you have these events that are sponsored either by companies or, or foundations? And um, do, do you have to manage that with your editorial voice? You know, some of these things I would I would note, we got into almost before anybody else did. So we were having to make up the, the rules as we were going and what the guardrails would be. Now, most media companies that have evolved adequately well have very diverse business models. And the profession itself has gotten much, much better at uh, providing the kind of uh, guidance that is needed to to keep church and state separated. So in our case, the content is all done by the editorial side and does not interact with the business side. We'll sell a let's say, the sponsorship to an event on uh, project-based learning or student-centered learning. And then we as the journalists, and I I host or uh, moderate a lot of these dinners myself, you know, we don't have any input from the sponsors in how we guide that conversation. The sponsors like it because it's like a focus group for them. And they get a lot of intelligence, but it's not that they are guiding the conversation. Products are never mentioned not that there's anything wrong with that in a different context, but not these that are editorially driven. Same with webinars. Um, were you tempted to look at other uh, business segments, e- either you know early learning or higher ed or moving into related spaces? I would say we do a pretty good job on the pre-K part of it, and we care about higher ed at the intersection. Issues like access, affordability, preparation, remediation. But we had a strength, and we focused on it kind of maniacally. That's what we wanted to make sure we protected and made strong and better. And so we have diversified, but we've diversified with our core 
asset, if you will. You know, we did do some international reporting for about five years. It's expensive, and we had to make decisions about priorities in terms of what we could afford to pursue. I'm talking about mainly now journalistic, and there wasn't a ready market for that to sell it. But we have tended to develop our our journalistic efforts, then think about how to build a business around it, if that makes sense. A recent exception is we've gone into a niche of our niche, which is the business of education, covering the marketplace. That's not just the tech sector, but it's a lot about the tech sector, where the money's coming from, startups, who's trying to accomplish what, because we weren't business journalists and we needed to develop that capacity. And we saw that as a potential win on the business side, too. Uh, Jenny, you're one of the most well-recognized leaders in in education, Uh, one of the smartest uh, leaders that uh, I have the chance to encounter uh, somewhat frequently. I'm wondering what, what's next for you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're not on a lot of boards right now, are you? I'm on a couple few. Do so you see more board work? My passion in some ways is about organizational development and change. The experience I've had here over the past 20 years of what it takes to reimagine an organization and help it not only sustain itself, but thrive, we would hope, is uh, something that gives me, I like it, and I, I think I'm pretty good at it. So I am interested in the intersection of K-12, philanthropy, and wherewithal to reimagine how we do what we do. But I, I, don't, I don't know what that'll look like. I really consciously decided to leave when things were as good as I knew to make them here and then um, give myself the benefit of a couple or a few months to think through what those options are. I, I don't know yet what that'll be. Do you think we'll benefit from a bit more of your writing? It's interesting. I'm a journalist who has tended to be an editor in my career, her career. And so uh, other than uh, foundation proposals and board reports and writings that get shared internally, I haven't done very much writing. I've also been very careful, uh, I mean, very consciously careful of not extending myself in writing in ways that would have been problematic for Ed Week. Because I do have opinions and I do have a point of view on things that I just felt like I couldn't share. So the short answer is yes, I probably will. Well, I try to write 500 words a day. I'd recommend it. It's a good way to figure out what you think. Yep. If your opinions are too hot for Ed Week, we'd love to have you on gettingsmart.com. Oh, that's great, Tom. I love that. It's It's been a real treat catching up with you, Jenny. Um, thanks. You, you've just made a giant contribution uh, to American education and, and American society by helping us better understand uh, what's happening. And in the, the schools our kids go to, um, a lot of us owe you a real debt of gratitude for an extraordinary career. We look forward to seeing what's next. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And I've appreciated your colleagueship. Thank you so much to Jenny Edwards for joining the Getting Smart podcast. Check out some of our other podcasts on iTunes from education leaders like Dan Dominic discussing the School Superintendents Association's hashtag Redefining Ready campaign, focusing on redefining what is meant by college and career readiness for today's students. 
And while you're in iTunes, subscribe to our podcast so you can receive updates when we post our latest episodes. And be sure to rate us while you're there. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Kat and Megan signing off.